I am Emily Lyons. In 2011, without a high school degree and with no money to my name, I decided to start my own business. Since then, I've built several multi-million dollar companies and I don't plan on stopping. Being a businesswoman, CEO, serial entrepreneur, survivor, and general life enthusiast, I'm endlessly jazzed by the business of life, especially the stories of extraordinary people I've had the privilege to meet along my own improbable journey to success. I don't think it's fair to keep that privilege to myself, and I think you deserve to be utterly lifted and shifted by these people too. All inspiring people are inspired people, so get ready to be inspired. Imagine getting paid to get glammed up and take photos. It sounds pretty glamorous, right? A career as a model might sound like it's perfect, but there's one thing we all know, and that's there is so much more than meets the eye. Cassandra Kelly is a successful professional model. She travels the world and appears in top publications with over half a million social followers. But Cassandra has a backstory she doesn't share. She lost her mother to suicide. Cassandra and I talk about the power of image and how looks really aren't what they seem. She is a strong and powerful woman, a young mother, and a mental health activist. I'm honored to first share her story with the world. Listen in. Okay, welcome back to Mind Your Business. I am with the one and only Cassandra Kelly. She is a professional model and a friend of mine, and she's also a mental health activist. Cassandra started working with one of my businesses, Femme Fatale Media, which is an event staffing agency back in 2012. But we really bonded earlier this year on our shared passion for mental health. We've both had our own very personal experiences with it, and we both kept fairly private until recently. Cassandra opened up to me on this story and I was really blown away. From the outside, it would look like she has the perfect life. Perfect pictures, career, a lovely little daughter, growing social media following at over half a million followers. What could be wrong? So it got me thinking about two sides of the coin, just how deceiving looks can be. And we're going to talk to Cassandra about her story, the power of image and the importance of mental health awareness. So welcome, Cassandra. Thank you. I'm so, so pumped to be here. And thanks for asking me. Well, thank you for saying yes. (laughs) So tell us about yourself. Who is Cassandra? Oh, God, that's a double-ended question. <laughs> a loaded question. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, obviously, you touched on what I do for a living now. I actually started modeling around the time that we met. I did promo stuff with you. I was growing my Instagram. And then I hit like a patch of you know, just partying too much, being out too much, being mm-hmm. like, God, I'm 24. What am I doing with my life? Mm-hmm. Like, I need to do something. So I quit all of that. I stopped modeling. I stopped, you know, promo modeling. I stopped everything and I went back to school. I became a law clerk. I worked as a law clerk for four years. And then I had my daughter and, you know, I bounced back really quick after her. And I decided that, you know what, I'm going to do one photo shoot. <laughs> <laughs> and I did one. And it kind of just like skyrocketed from there. And from that, I built kind of this, you know, social media brand for myself over the past year. It's only been a year. Um, That's it? That's it. I had probably 30,000 followers as of last December. Wow. In one year, I know. And 
you know, I went from working nine to five with my daughter being in daycare since she was six months old, like struggling to make money, even though I had a great job on paper, it -hmm. wasn't really, you know, it was great career wise. It was great, you know, on paper, but it like, it wasn't, you know, enough, you know? So I, this is so much more freeing. Like my daughter, I'm with my daughter every day. I have her full time now. So I'm able to do that and I'm finishing university. So I, ha- I mean, I have a lot going on. Who am I as a person? I don't know. I'm a mom. <laughs> I'm a mom and I'm a university student and I'm a model, I guess. That's pretty much what my time consists of. And I'm now sober. I stopped drinking. So I, uh, oh, I'm well, congratulations. trying to do everything I can to get myself right and set mm-hmm. up for how I want to be in the, you know, in the future, the kind of person I want to be, right? How long? So you've been modeling since 2012. I've so. been modeling since 2012, but I took a six-year break. A six-year break. Wow. What attracted you to modeling? Why did you want um, Honestly, growing up, I was always like the pretty friend, but never like the it girl type, you know what? I was always that one kind of in the background. Mm -hmm. And I think that I like just wanted to do something to not really necessarily stand out, but something to make me feel like I was something special. So I had a friend who was a photographer and he was doing these beautiful shoots. And I saw these girls and just how great they like felt, you know, and like how beautiful the images were. And so I asked him if he would, you know, be down to shoot me. And then I just, I started doing back in the day when Playboy had Playboy Miss Social. Mm -hmm. So you would like basically Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And like, and it was like a competition and the girls who would win every month would get like a free photo shoot with Playboy. So I was in the top 10 for, you know, forever with just from this one photo shoot and Playboy actually had used my photo on their Instagram page, which back then was huge because now it's not like today where girls have millions of followers. There, if you had 10,000 followers, that was huge, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, back then I had like 15 or 20,000 followers, which was huge back then. And um, I, so I, just from one shoot, it, it was one of those things that like one thing can really change your life. Right. And I just, I loved it. I fell in love with it. Just putting an idea into play and then seeing the end result, like that's what gets it for me. Like having this concept of the shoot, like what you want to do, how you want to portray yourself and then seeing that come to life. Like that's what I love about. about Do you find that your images represent you? Like do they show who you are? Because I find that often the photos that are taken of me. Like they're great and I love doing it and I love planning them out, but they're not really me as a person. They're something that we construct and we put together as exactly. a team. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that sometimes they do accurately show me if it's more my concept. Mm-hmm. But again, shooting for a living is it's not always your concept, right? Yeah. Like a lot of the times it's this collaboration of photographers and models and makeup artists and it takes time to set everything up so it all depends on what you're shooting for and a lot of times people don't realize that I get paid to shoot like that's my job so Mm -hmm. a lot of the times it's not me it's who I'm portraying myself as much like an actor Mm -hmm. like an actor's not always them like at the end of the day it's a job right there are some shoots that I'm like okay this is so me you know what I mean this (laughs) yeah exactly what I would love. And, but then there's a lot of times that I shoot that I don't even end up sharing photos because it was Mm -hmm. a paid shoot and it was for them. You know what I mean? It wasn't for me. Like, even though they give me permission to, sometimes I'll share like one to Mm -hmm. like be, you know, nice, (laughs) 
but it's really all about how you portray yourself. And I think a lot of people, I have a very separate life from social media. Mm-hmm. So I have my modeling page, which is my work page, but I don't really share about my life on that unless it's like obviously something mental health related. I'm helping, you know, one of my friends just did a wicked bike ride from Ottawa to Niagara to raise money for Pathstone, which is a children's mental health community here in Niagara. And so I share stuff like that sometimes, but mm-hmm. I don't really share too, too much into my private life. So one of the things that I've observed over the years is just how self-conscious models are. Like people see them from the outside and they see these photos and they think that they are, you know, super cocky or whatever, but they're actually some of the most insecure people on the planet. It's so true. I think that it's like an epidemic. I think that a lot of these girls just are trying so hard to fit this mold that has been created for them. And I think that some are going overboard. Like you see the levels of plastic surgery. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not against plastic surgery. Obviously I've I've had a breast augmentation, you know, I get Botox, like, but I think there's a a very distinct line between enhancing yourself for you and Mm -hmm. doing it for show. Like, and I think that that's like the whole mental attitude right now is like, people are not, they always need to be better. They always need to be better than this girl. They always need to be better than that girl. It's like, it's kind of like a competition, even though you love you know, a lot of the girls you're working with, it's still like, you know, it's very hard to understand unless you're involved in it. I think, yeah, when you're being paid to, based on your appearance, you're critical of everything. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. And I mean, it's a hard mindset to get into, but I think I do a pretty good job because like, it's funny because a lot of girls don't realize that who you are as a person and how you treat people and how you act also plays a big role in you getting hired, you getting booked. Huge. Like the industry also talks, right? So if you are somebody who looks beautiful, you know, like you could be, you know, a 10 out of 10, but if you're not a good person and you're not a genuine person and you're not capable of networking properly or making, you know, not making friends with people, you know, then you're not going to get hired just because you're more beautiful than or standard wise more beautiful than another girl. There's a lot of times that I've gotten jobs over other girls who I was like, wow, there's no way I'm getting this just because mm-hmm. she wasn't, you know, someone that they could easy work to work with, with. Yeah, mm-hmm. that they can work with. Right. I think that that's another like kind of double standard now because these girls think that like they need to be this you know, done up full of surgery type of girl to land Mm -hmm. gigs. But I like, I pride myself on being like the girl next door type, you know, Mm -hmm. like the sweet, like I try to go out of my way to like be kind, you know, showing up on time, not being diva ish, like, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that like we, this industry really needs to get back to that. Mm-hmm. you know, to that type of person back in like the eighties and nineties, like when Playboy was huge, when Maxim was like huge, like women weren't paying to be on covers of magazines. Like they mm-hmm. are, it was like, it, now it's who has the most money is getting, you know, these covers back then it was, you had to be asked. It was like a rite of passage. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you had to be an all around decent human being. <laughs> and, Do you find that your social media helps you get Bookings? I do. I think it's basically your portfolio now. Hmm. I think that nowadays it's not like it used to be where women used to have to go and 
audition for these gigs and go and submit, you know, and go and show up. I mean, unless you're doing runway stuff still, right? Which I'm not. Glamour, like swimsuit, a lot of that, everything's online now. You do stuff like this, you do stuff like Zoom, you do stuff like, and your Instagram is really your portfolio, right? Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself to be a confident person? Do you struggle with? I think that everyone struggles with confidence in some areas of their life. I mean, I have my little things that I think everyone has. Like everyone's a little more critical of themselves than, you know, someone Mm -hmm. else would be. But I like to think that I'm pretty confident. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I wasn't. Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of, I mean, I've had a lot of negative, you know, not attention, but family, you know, not really (laughs) supporting it. Like, because I did work in law, right? They're worried that I was going to ruin my chances. But then when they see that I'm now able to like take care of my daughter and finish school and do stuff like that, Mm -hmm. um, they're like a little bit more accepting of it now. But confidence wise, I mean, I don't think any girl could do what we do unless they did have some type of confidence, you know, there's different types of confidence, right? There's, I've been through a lot. So for me, it's like something like this is nothing, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like, it's just, I live with the mentality where I'm just going to do it and not really think too much about it because Mm -hmm. if I start thinking about it, then that's when the problems are at. (laughs) So when did you start getting involved in mental health? God, that's the hard thing to say. Literally, my entire life has been revolved around mental health. As we spoke before a little bit, I kind of told you my story, but my father passed away when I was young. He had cancer and I was 10, I think, when I found out. And my mom got sick shortly thereafter. She was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was very, very young. And then she lost my younger brother in childbirth pretty much. And then my father got sick and they were she kind of always held on to this notion that they were separated. So she kind of always held on to this notion that they were going to get back together. And I think it just hit her hard when he was told he wasn't going to recover. And then so her bipolar disorder kind of developed into paranoid schizophrenia. So I grew up my whole life (laughs) basically advocating for mental health in my daily life because people wouldn't understand, you know, why she would say things that were like off the wall or why she would do things like one time when I was young, she literally thought voices were coming from our cable and telephone line. So she would not like just unplug the phone. She would cut the lines like from the base of the house, like thinking that these were like these voices were coming in from from the lines like there were times that she thought that the government was listening into her phone calls like it was very very like strong paranoia and i dealt with it since i was like 14 so for me talking about mental health and becoming you know a mental health advocate as i like to say it's kind of like a self entitlement like somebody doesn't give you that you go out and live your life every day trying to, you know, advocate for people who necessarily can't explain or can't talk for themselves when it comes to that, right? And you, so, have, you have a sister, right? I have a sister, yeah. I have a younger sister and a younger brother. And yeah, both of them have been through a lot, as I have. <laughs> and my mm. sister's been through worse than both of us, but she's doing very well. She has a young daughter now too. And we all kind of try to get together and do things to help the community because I feel like as much as people talk about mental health, they don't really understand it. And if they do think about like 
people who have mental health issues, they always think like depression, suicide. They don't really think about how far it really goes Mm -hmm. or they'll see people on the street, you know, and just be like, oh, that's a crackhead. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But really that person's actually suffering and they don't really put two and two together until somebody, it, all it takes is one person to say, you know what, maybe they're actually sick. You know what I mean? It's a lot more like daily into people's lives than people understand. So, like one in five, one in five people is suffering with men, some form of mental health issues. Wow. Yeah. I can believe that for sure. Mm-hmm. So growing up, did people know that she was sick? Yes and no. Like my grandparents knew. My grandparents actually lived around the corner from us. At one point, Child Protective Services wanted to take my sister me and my brother were older at the time. So they kind of just didn't really worry too much about us. So my sister went to go live with my grandparents for a year. But when she was on her medication, she was considered like stable, like she, Mm -hmm. you know, paid her bills, she did everything. But the problem was, is when people are schizophrenic, they'll be on their medication for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they'll think, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm okay now. You know, mm-hmm. I'm okay now. So they'll stop taking it. And there's actually this great period of time where the medication is still in their system, but like they're slowly coming off of it. So their thoughts are more clear and precise. Like they're more themselves than they'll ever be, you know, because the medication's still there, but they're clearer because they're not taking it every day anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of sad, really, but we always knew a crash was about to come when she was like seemed at her best. Oh, wow. At her best, like, because the medication is so strong, it kind of makes them zombie like. Like, they can't really show emotion. She couldn't really, like, like, it was almost like talking to a wall, kind of, at some point. But then there would be these times where she would just be so good, like, back to herself, like, you know, like clear thought, clear emotion, but it wouldn't last. It would last a very short period of time before the, you know, the dip into complete paranoia. Oh, wow. Yeah. It wasn't easy. (laughs) No. How did that affect you? Well, I grew up very young, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, I started realizing it around 10, around 14 is when it got very, very bad. And I basically raised my siblings. Like I was the one who made sure they got ready in the morning, didn't miss their bus for school. I was the one who made sure they had lunches. The only thing I ever did was laundry. (laughs) Um, But but yeah, like it can be terrifying at times, but then at times, you know, you see that person that you know again, right? So Mm -hmm. like you love your family. So no matter what, you know, you're there for them because you know, like, it's hard. It's not like she had a substance abuse problem. It's not like she had, you know, it's not like she was a raging alcoholic. It's not like she, you know, she Mm -hmm. was on drugs or meth. Like it's something that you realize that they can't help. Like, Mm -hmm. so it makes it so different. You know, it's like, that's still my mom, you know, she's just sick. Like, it's just like cancer. And we found it really hard with the health system here in Ontario because there were times that she would go in and we would wait for hours at the ER, hours upon hours, because she was off her meds just to have them release her and be like, go see your family doctor. Yeah. Like my brother waited with her one time for eight hours and they just said, oh, you're not a danger to yourself or anyone else. Go home. And it's like, it's very, very difficult as a child to 
know that if that was your mother having a heart attack, they would have done every single thing that they could have to save her. But she could have went home that night and, you know, and killed herself. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. the mental health system in Ontario needs to change because they still look at it like it's nothing. They would treat her like it was nothing. And I think that was the hardest part of it growing up Mm -hmm. was knowing that you know that something's wrong, like just like any other illness but having a system that like still thinks of it as being, you know, nothing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I know that when I tried to get help, they turned me away the first few times and basically told me I was fine and gave me some pamphlets and I had to keep going back and being like, no, like I haven't eaten in days. Yeah. I'm very lucky that my family doctor has been my family doctor since I was born. He was my grandmother's doctor. He was my doctor. He is my daughter's doctor now. And he has been with me my whole life and he is very progressive. He's older, but he's very progressive when it comes to stuff like that. And he um, has a great family of other physicians that he works with all in this community. There's chiropractors, there's, you know, I have my psychotherapist there, there's other counselors, there's, you know, a nurse practitioner, there's, you know, an OBGYN, there's everything within this little community of doctors. So when I was starting to have my own issues, especially after my mother passed away this year, you know, I've had bits of depression, I have a panic disorder, like a And it got really bad. My anxiety was so bad. And I was projecting my feelings of my mother's death onto myself to the point where I was borderline psychosis in August because I was convincing myself I was becoming schizophrenic because my mom passed and it was just like all coming in, right? I was convincing myself. And he's like, Cass, you're not (laughs) becoming schizophrenic. Like you just, your anxiety and your depression and everything is manifesting. So he got me in right away with my psychotherapist and she was normally on a three month like wait and they got me in. So I'm very, very lucky that I have a physician who's known me my whole life, who genuinely cares about me and my family. But other than that, it's very difficult. I mean, the amount of options that are available and resources that are available just aren't enough. I remember... When I was, you know, at the peak of my panic and everything and asking this doctor, I was like, what if I have schizophrenia or all this stuff? And, and I remember this doctor saying to me, people who have schizophrenia would never say, what if I have schizophrenia? That's just not how their brain works. It's funny that he said that to you because it's actually not true. Oh, um, really? There's four different types of schizophrenia. Believe me, I've looked it up. Three yeah. or four different types of schizophrenia. And one type is very, very rare, but there is, there is a type of schizophrenia where people actually know that they have it. Like it's most people don't, but there's one type where people are very aware of what's going on and it's very rare, but it actually does happen. Yeah. There's, I think there's three different types and it can come on like within a month or it could develop within years. Like you could Mm -hmm. have small symptoms for years, but lucky for both me and you normally onset of women declines after 30. It's Mm -hmm. usually 25 to 30. And like after 45, it's very, very rare that women get it. With males, it's young. So my brother's pretty much off the hook because with males, onset's usually 18 to 22-ish. So that's why I was concerned. I mean, losing both parents in such a tragic way for me, 
is terrifying for me. And I think after I had my daughter, it became more terrifying. I'm scared of plane rides. I never used to be. I'm scared of, you know, waking up one day and thinking that I'm going to have cancer. Like I'm almost like a borderline, you know, illness illness, anxiety disorder, what's the other term that they call it when you're always- Hypochondriac. Hypochondriac. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I always think, you know, like I was getting migraines because of my anxiety and I was having, you know, dizzy spells and I was like, oh, I'm having a stroke, you know, and it would Mm -hmm. set me into a panic attack, you know, just because I'm so afraid now because I lost both my parents in such a tragic way. I'm so worried about not being there for my daughter, you know, because I'm so understandable. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very, very terrifying when, you know, these types of symptoms come over you because you don't know, like, it's not like you can just go to the doctor and get fixed for it. You know, it's not like so, so difficult. It's so difficult waking up, you know, and changing your life, really eating better, making sure you sleep, like making Mm -hmm. sure you de-stress. You know, I do yoga now. I haven't had a drink in two months because I noticed like drinking just set off my anxiety. Mm -hmm. So, and it's not like I was a great drinker anyway. I was awful. I, you know, drink in excess to deal with stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, for Mm -hmm. a long time. It's about like, like I'm vegetarian now. Like I don't eat meats. I don't eat anything that's going to set off my anxiety, I'm, you know, I turn off my electronics, you know, two hours before bed. (laughs) There's so many things you can do yourself to help cope, like cognitive Mm -hmm. behavioral therapy, like has been a godsend for me. Just learning how to breathe during a panic attack, Mm -hmm. you know, there's so much you can do to just help yourself that, you know, that obviously a lot of doctors aren't, <laughs> aren't doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. There's a lot of people that need to catch up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. So when your mom passed away at the beginning of this year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in March. In March. And it was, you didn't expect it? My mom's death was kind of sudden, but at the same time, it was kind of expected. She committed suicide, obviously. It, it's one of those things where it was such a long time coming that you, it's like, like I always use cancer as a reference, but it's like a cancer patient who's just been struggling for 15 years, finally like letting go. And that's kind of what it felt for me. Like she had tried to commit suicide probably four or five times that I'm aware of. When I was 14, she was sleeping for like two days. And I was like, why is she still sleeping? She had sent me and my brother and sister to my grandparents for the weekend. And I had went home to like get something And I'm like, she's still sleeping. What is going on? Her door was locked. So I like literally climbed around our house, got a ladder, went up to her window and she was unconscious. She had taken like a bunch of pills and, you know, my grandfather rode his bike over because my grandmother was gone with the car and we called 911. I think I was like 14. I remember it was like the day before I started high school (laughs) and like she was just struggling. She was sick and, you know, she battled every single day of her life, right? Like how long can one person do that, you know, constantly battle their own mind every single day, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was one of those things where, you know, it was sudden and we were obviously grieving and, and mourning the loss of her. But at the same time, there's part of you that feels so awful that you're kind of relieved. You know what I mean? You're kind of like, okay, like she's not struggling anymore. She just wanted to get back to her old self so bad for so many years and she just couldn't. 
Like, so for us, it was like a catch 22, like you're mourning and you know, you're missing and loving that person. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you kind of realize that like, maybe that is what was best for her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, it's hard. <laughs> I don't really talk about it too much because <laughs> it's not easy, but. Did you ever have those conversations with her? Like, why do you want to die? I don't think she really did want to die. Like, I think, you know, it's hard to explain. Like, I don't think she wanted to die. I just think she wanted it to stop. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very like in the moment type things for her. It like, she would go about, you know, her days and be fine. Like when she was on her medication, she would be okay. Like she would be, you know, she would come to family events, but like she always had this very, very strong anxiety, fear of public places. Like she would go grocery shopping at night because she just always felt like people were watching her. Like it was, it's the paranoia, right? It gets to you after a while. And I think she developed like, I don't know if it was a type of depression or what it was, but Mm -hmm. after so long, like she just got tired. It's like any other patient with a chronic illness. Like how long can you really hold on for, you know? You can push your body to its limit, but if your mind is ready to give up, your mind is ready to give up. Like, it's hard to explain because physically she's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> as far as any doctor would have said, she was, you know, physically fine, but we all know that mental health is it's just the same. Do you think the doctors could have gone about it in a different way that could have... Yeah, I definitely do. I don't really want to get into it too much because I have some things going on <laughs> in regards to it. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So, I, but yeah, I think that there's a lot of things that they could have done knowing her history. So, what's your mission now? What would you love to see happen? Honestly, I just want to see. It's hard to say what one person's mission can be. Obviously, bringing awareness is number one. Having people understand that, you know, because they're sick doesn't make them less of a person because you're dealing with your own, you know, everyone through the course of their life has some sort of, you know, a mental illness, like whether it's minor, whether it's major, you know, whether it's depression or whether it's bipolar, whether it, it, you know, everyone will have something like anxiety and to just, let them know that they're not alone, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, I would love to see the system change. I would love to see people who come into the ER for help m- with mental illness is taken just as seriously as someone who comes in with, you know, a stroke or a heart attack. Broken arm. Yeah, broken arm, a cut that needs stitches. It's the same thing. Like, I would love to see more you know, counseling, more like psychologists Mm -hmm. in our system. You know, my mom had to go see a psychiatrist from Hamilton because we didn't even have one here, you know? How far is that from you? Like 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, it's one of those things that, you know, they're just brushing these people under the rug, you know? It's like they're less worthy to the system because, Mm -hmm. you know, their symptoms aren't physical. My ex, who was a doctor, didn't understand it. And he would get really upset and be like, oh, you're fine. Like, you're fine with anxiety. And we went to see a counselor and the counselor said to her, if she had a broken leg, would you be telling her to go for a run? Mm -hmm. Because that's what you're doing. You're telling her just to live and do these things that you expect of her normally because you can't see. can't see it. Yeah. I completely agree. And it's hard to explain that to people who haven't lived it. Like, Mm -hmm. I've lived with it 
my whole life, not like not just my own, but with my mother's. So mm-hmm. I have a really different view of it than most people. And I think that all it takes is a few people who, you know, really truly understand it to talk about it. And I'm lucky that I have a great family and a great community who have obviously witnessed it firsthand <laughs> as well. Mm-hmm. And they understand, they understand like it doesn't just affect you know, that person, it affects, you know, their whole family, everyone. So (laughs) hopefully it'll, you know, the narrative is slowly changing around it, that it's something of a weakness when somebody's got mental illness or it's something to be feared or not talked about for sure. Yeah. I think the stigma is starting to go like with things like Bell Let's Talk Day with like things like, um, you know, Canadian Mental Health Association and, you know, the work that they're doing and the promos that everyone's doing. And people, like I said, all it takes is really one person who's willing to like use their voice to stand up for people who can't say it for themselves. Like we have rides for cancer. We have, you know, walks for autism, but like no one really... Mm does anything big enough yet (laughs) for people with mental health issues. I think that once that, you know, mold gets broken, it's going to be a lot easier. Nobody knows how many people suffer from it because so many people don't want to talk about it. Yeah, I completely agree. It's one of those things. I mean, you can only, you know, keep pushing as one person, right? (laughs) So how old's your daughter? She'll be three on Boxing Day, actually. So Aww. Very cute. So you, yeah, she was only young when this all happened. Yeah. So nobody really knows, has been aware of these issues too much. Is there a reason that you don't post about it? Yes, <laughs> kind of. It was very, very hard for me to deal with. Um, mm-hmm. Me and my mom had a turbulent relationship. Um, Understandably. Sometimes we were very good. Sometimes we weren't. When she passed away, we were not on good terms. We actually weren't really speaking. I was very upset over something she had done, but obviously in hindsight now, I should not have been, (laughs) should not really have been upset about. But like I said, someone who's sick like that, it affects everyone in their Mm -hmm. family. And I had let it affect me at that point. And obviously I regret it. So it was very hard for me to talk about because I felt this overwhelming sort of like guilt, you know, like I was partially responsible for what had happened, you know, and that's really hard to deal with. And I think that's why I was manifesting all those symptoms because mm-hmm. of my guilt. I just felt like there was more I could have done had I put my own ego aside and, you know, my own mm-hmm. selfishness aside. But like I said, when you're dealing with somebody who is struggling like that for years, it's very hard to always be like, okay, she's sick. You know what I mean? Like when when it's all the time, like your whole, you know, years and years. When is Cassandra first? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it had been just a very trying time. I was stressed. I was working and my daughter and I was trying to get, you know, get, get into school again. And I was very, very stressed of my own stuff. And it was just like, I just couldn't deal with like her stuff. And then obviously this happened. So it just, it threw me through a huge guilt. Those, it, I mean, those things I've heard of them often that where we do them and they're not, you know, at the time it seems so normal, but then we regret it so much. Yeah. The last time that I saw my sister before she passed away, she was in a hospital. She had caught in a cold and it went to her lungs and she was hooked up to IVs and whatnot. And I was leaving. My ride was there to come back to Toronto 
because she was in hospital near Brantford. And she's like, oh, wait, I'll call my nurse and I'll get unhooked and I'll walk you down. Yeah. And I said, no, no, I'm in a rush. I got to go. Yeah. And I wasn't in a rush. I just wanted to get back to the city. It was late. But it was like, and that was the last time I saw her. And I couldn't have waited an extra 20 minutes so that she could have got her IV set up so that she could have walked me down. And the guilt from that just ate away at me for months after. And that's kind of what sent me into a spiral was thinking of that. The same as me. Yeah. That's exactly what happened to me. Like it was just, you get so caught up in your own life. Sometimes you like, just don't stop and think about something, you know, Mm -hmm. and like the bigger picture. And I think that is exactly what happened with me. And so that's the reason I wasn't really able, this is probably the first time other than the one post that I did talking about it on my Instagram that I've really talked about it because it's difficult. It's difficult for me to say that without, you know, breaking down (laughs) because I love my mom, you know, I loved her, but it's not easy as a family member to cope and deal with somebody who is sick like that. It's like, like you said, like your sister, you know, like they're sick and and they're, you know, you want what's best for them and you want to be there for them. But at the same time, like you have to be living your life too, you know, like, and what would they want for you too? Mm -hmm. If they were healthy, then they would have, they would have probably had another opinion. Yeah, exactly. They would want you to be happy and taking care of yourself. That's the reason why I haven't really spoken about it. So what would be your message to somebody that might be suffering from mental illness? and has been too afraid to come forward or talk about it? Well, my message would be one, like you're not alone, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, so we all struggle at some point, but it's just realizing that, you know, you're worthy of taking care of yourself, like go to a counselor, go do things you need to do, like be with friends and family as much as you don't want to be. You know, I know a lot of times I would want to be shut up in my house and, but I knew I needed that, you know, positive reinforcement for my family. And like, I needed to feel loved and I needed to get off off my couch and, you know, make those steps for yourself. Like, because at the end of the day, like taking care of your brain is just as important as taking care of your body. Go talk to somebody, you know, get your sleep in, like do whatever you need to do. Go for a run, like get your blood pumping, you know, and get your mental clarity clear because at the end of the day, like you only have one brain, (laughs) you only have one, you know, cognizant soul. You need to take care of that just as much as you need to take care of anything else. And don't be afraid to be sick (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's what you are just like anyone else you're just sick and I'm sick (laughs) and and Emily is sick (laughs) everyone is and so it's very hard to have the type of courage it's one thing to have courage when it comes to somebody else but it's a lot harder to have courage when it comes to yourself and it's very hard to put into words <laughs> what I want to say. But That's great. Yeah, it's just about taking care of your whole being and not just taking care of your body. So where can people find more information about you? Well, my Instagram, obviously, is uh, Cassandra Kelly. We're working on <laughs> a website. My daughter's playing with my mascara. My Instagram is number one. I have private Snapchat, private Facebook that I use for family and friends only. Like I said, I like to keep things separate. So Instagram is my number one. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today Problem, and sharing you. your story. Thanks, Um, I really appreciate it. Hopefully it was really brave of you. I'm in the city. <laughs> yeah. And I, I hope that uh, somebody that might need it will hear this. Yeah, for sure. I hope so. 